Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, just this week, someone at Facebook predicted the end of the written word. Apparently that will have something to do with mass communication via video after video. My goodness. So clearly, it's a good time for a talk on paper. Author Mark Kurlansky tells the story of the time he met legendary newsman Walter Cronkite. Cronkite greeted him with the cheeky line, I know you. You're the leading expander of minutia. If you're only familiar with Kurlansky's book titles, that may seem an apt description. There was cod, then salt. People keep telling him to write about pepper next. But his latest is paper, paging through history. As Kurlansky's readers know, and Uncle Walter likely knew, he isn't trying to find the obscure in minor details. He's looking for a bigger picture and critical keys to history. Mark Kurlansky is the best-selling author of Cod, a biography of the fish that changed the world, and Salt, a world history. He spoke at Town Hall Seattle on May 27th. Thank you to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Here, Town Hall Seattle's Ware Harmon introduces Mark Kurlansky. Mark Kurlansky has been a commercial fisherman, a dock worker, a paralegal, a cook, and a pastry chef, among other roles. You could say that that restless array of work experiences is mirrored in some ways in his 28 or is it 29 books spanning children's literature, nonfiction, and fiction, and topics ranging from the Basque country to the Caribbean, from frozen food to baseball in the Dominican Republic. Representative bestsellers include 1997's Cod, A Biography of the Fish That Changed the World, 2002's Salt, A World History, 1968, The Year That Rocked the World from 2004, and 2006's Nonviolence, 25 Lessons from the History of a Dangerous Idea. Karlansky has received a James, Bood, James Beard Food Writing Award, an LA Times Science Writing Award, and two ALA Notable Book Awards. He joins us tonight to discuss his latest book, Paper, Paging Through History. Uh, please join me in offering a warm town hall welcome to Mark Kurlansky. Thank you. People are always coming up to me and offering me book ideas. <laughs> I got a book idea for you. Often it's pepper. <laughs> you know, I did salt, I ought to do pepper. Uh, uh, sometimes it's something unpredictable. What about the history of lettuce? You know, um, the more obscure, the better, is sort of the idea. Um, when I was working on my book about the year 1968, I interviewed Walter Cronkite, who lived across town from me in Manhattan, and I went to his apartment. And he answered the door himself. <clears throat> and I sort of paused for a moment because, you know, there was this guy who had given me news my whole childhood. <laughs> and uh, in that very familiar and distinct voice, he suddenly said, Why, I know you. You're the leading expander of minutia. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's actually not what I'm trying to do. 
I think of myself primarily as a storyteller, both fiction and nonfiction. I look for things that are good stories. Um, I don't try to be weirdly obscure. Uh, maybe I am sometimes, but I don't realize it. Because to me, there are things that uh, seem important. Um, so a guy contacted me named Kermit Hummel. Odd name. He uh, ran a small publishing house in Vermont uh, that was acquired by Norton. <clears throat> and he said, you know, you ought to do a book about paper. Uh, Kermit's the only one who's ever talked me into their idea. Um, we talked about it a lot. He was a very interesting guy. He gave me some books to read. Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought that it really was a good idea. Uh, I thought the timing was right. I thought it was a good story. And I liked the way it seemed to have a beginning and an end. Because the problem with history is that history doesn't have a beginning or an end. Everything just sort of flows. Uh, but books have a beginning and an end. <laughs> so you have to figure out where to begin and where to end. And the story of paper actually had a beginning. A guy named Kai Lun, who was a eunuch in the Han court of China in the first century AD. And every school kid in China learns that Kai Lun invented paper. And his portrait is everywhere in China. Um, the only problem is that archaeologists have gone to China and found pieces of paper that were 100 and 200 years before Kai Lun was born. Um, and the idea that paper had an ending, which I thought, you know, be a good time to write about paper now that it's after 2,000 years about to disappear. Well, it's not about to disappear. It's not, it's not anywhere close to disappearing. Um, so all my basic premises were wrong. <coughs> and uh, working on this book really changed my thinking a lot about technology and history and the way they interact. Um, for one thing, I came to realize um, this popular idea that uh, new technology replaces old technology really isn't true. I mean, it, it happens sometimes, but very rarely. You know, television was supposed to replace radio. Uh, vinyl record sales are going up and up every year. Did you know that British laws are written on vellum, which is... Uh, high-quality parchment. Uh, you know, they have been for as long as the British have been writing laws, and it's this very old European idea that you can't really count on paper. If something's really important, you should put it on parchment. So a member of parliament recently said, you know, we could just print these laws on paper and we'd save a lot of money. <gasps> People got very upset. Um, you know, things, uh, things stick around, and, uh, you know, and, and, and things come back, too. Uh, 
you know, we've invented all these great alphabets with phonetic characters so that we can say anything. And it, it seems to me fairly suddenly in recent years, we're back with pictographs and hieroglyphics. <laughs> I mean, what, what is an emoji? Um, uh, and I, I, I came to understand that we were looking at this whole technology thing wrong. It's, it's what I call the technological fallacy. The technological fallacy is the idea that technology changes society. Actually, society changes for lots of reasons, economic, political, cultural, and as it changes, it calls up technology to facilitate, facilitate these changes. Uh, just to give a really simple example, around 250 BC uh, in China, uh, a guy named Meng Chen invented a camel hair brush. Now, the Chinese were doing a lot of uh, writing uh, and were, as they still are, very into the art of writing, calligraphy. And they were doing watercolors and um, they were doing all these things with a wooden stylus. And um, so this guy, Meng Chin, who, by the way, is the one who built the original Great Wall of China, um, came up with this idea of a hairbrush. But, you know, it's, it's not like the Chinese started doing calligraphy and writing and watercolors and all these things because now they had a brush. They got a brush because they were doing these things and they needed a better tool for doing it. And that's how it usually works. Famous uh, essay by Martin Heidegger called The Question Concerning Technology. Um, he said, technology is a means to an end. We have an end, we have a goal in mind, and we look to technology to help us achieve those goals. Uh, <coughs> I, I think it's useful to look at the Luddites by which I don't mean your neighbor who refuses to use a cell phone. But, you know, the original Luddites who, strangely, we don't really know why they're called Luddites. Uh, there was this story of a guy named Ludd, and I was almost believing that story until they started saying that he lived in Sherwood Forest. I thought, <laughs> wait a minute. Um, anyway, for whatever reason, they were called Luddites. They were uh, weavers in the British Midlands. In the 1790s, a Frenchman named Jacquard uh, built a loom. I mean, think about this. 1790s, he created a loom that was programmable with punch cards and could do all sorts of complicated weaves through uh, punch cards. And he did this not because he wanted to advance technology. He did this because he wanted to crush the weavers who had, you know, good salaries and lots of benefits because they were highly skilled workers and very needed. Um, and the uh, point was not lost on the British weavers who started smashing the looms. And the British army tried to stop them. It became a capital offense to smash a loom. It got very violent and the Luddites lost. And some years later, Karl Marx, in writing his definitive work, Das Kapital, wrote about the Luddites. And he said something very important. He said, 
The reason the Luddites failed was because they attacked the technology, whereas what they needed to do was attack the society, because it was the society that was creating the looms. Um, when I looked at paper and I looked at the history of paper, I, I could see all this very clearly. Technology arriving when it's needed. Um, you know, paper making at whatever time, we're, you know, we don't know when, but it was invented in China. And it's incredible, you know, what it is, is uh, cellulose fibers, very common sugar compound that forms fibers in most plants. It's in lots of things. It's in grass, it's in wood, it's in bamboo, in straw, in cotton, in silk. And you take anything that has cellulose fibers, and if you can beat it down to the fibers, mix the fibers with water, so it's only like about 2% fibers and the rest water. So it just looks like water, like maybe slightly cloudy water. And you have a screen, you know, originally a little box-like thing, screen. You pour this water solution on the screen, the water falls through, and a film forms on the screen and you can peel it off and dry it and write on it. I mean, <laughs> I just, I can't imagine how somebody ever thought of that, but they did. And they did because um, China was this society uh, where um, people wrote a lot, people read a lot. Uh, there was a bureaucracy that put out lots of uh, um, uh, information and, and annals and history and uh, and they were trying to republish the philosophers like Confucius who had been suppressed under the previous dynasties and had only been um, written in uh, carved in stone uh, you know which is really good for durability not so good for mobility um, <clears throat> But they, they, you know, they were doing all of these things, and they needed something better than stone, better than bones, better than uh, tortoise shell or bamboo or silk, which in that order were the writing materials they had. So they came up with paper. And they taught their culture to the Koreans, not paper making, but their culture, their language, and... Uh, love of calligraphy and all these things, and soon the Koreans wanted to make paper also, and the same thing happened in Japan. Um, and for many centuries, uh, paper was a uniquely Asian thing. And then in the Middle Ages, the Arabs developed this extremely literate society um, Lots of books, and mathematics, and science, and they wrote a lot of poetry, and uh, they even did cookbooks. And um, they needed a good writing material, something better than papyrus or parchment. And um, so the thing is, the Chinese were the only ones that invented this. Ever after, it was there if you wanted it, if you needed it and people would adopt it when they needed it. Um, 
and the Arabs in this huge empire that went from uh, Central Asia to the Atlantic, from the Pyrenees to the Sahara, with books everywhere and paper mills everywhere. Um, but the uh, Europeans wouldn't use paper. They knew about paper because the Arabs tried to sell it to them, did sell a little bit to them. But Europe was a society <clears throat> that didn't write a lot, people didn't read a lot. Monks uh, wrote and read, and so there were a few books <clears throat> in monasteries, and um, they were very beautifully handwritten on parchment. Uh, parchment is not really very practical stuff if you're going to do a lot of books, because you know you need hundreds of animals. You know, it's, it's animal hide, so you need hundreds of animals to do a book. Um, not sure how many depends on the size of the book. I, I checked the, the you know the Jewish Torah is still done on parchment, and I checked with a Torah maker in Israel, and he told me that uh, it took him about sixty calves to make a Torah, which is smaller than um, most books, and um, this was fine. Parchment was fine because you know they didn't have a, a lot of. Uh, use for paper, and uh, paper was made from rags, and, you know, they would write about, <clears throat> there, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in this, you know, it was like, the, uh, they would say, you know, the Jews and the Muslims are doing this disgusting stuff, writing on old clothes, and, um, and then Europe started to become a much more literate society, a lot more people, uh, learn to read and to write a lot more books. There hadn't been many books in Europe. You know, the Vatican, uh, the Vatican wanted to have a great library. They had about 500 books. You know, the, 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 the Arabs, like in Cordoba, had hundreds of thousands of books in a library. Uh, several libraries in the Arab world with hundreds of thousands of books. But, you know, Europe started changing, and they needed, uh, they needed paper also. Um, and uh, it was there w when they needed it, and uh, they just they, they, starting with the Italians in the uh, mid twelve hundreds uh, started making paper. Uh, it never paper making never crossed the Alps until Nuremberg in uh, thirteen ninety. Um, <clears throat> but eventually, Europe also. Um, became a paper society. Um, and, you know, paper was, uh, the, the society was changing and paper was the tool that would uh, help this happen. You know, um, art on paper, which was a very old uh, Asian idea, ancient China, but um, in Europe there was no affordable art until uh, the Renaissance when they started having paper. You know, they had people like Albert Durer's woodcuts and uh, drawings became an art form for the first time uh, because um, there was this kind of democratizing going on in, in Europe and artists wanted to reach other classes and not just do art for the church and, and nobility and paper was the, <clears throat> the perfect solution. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci 
in his lifetime did 15 paintings, uh, most of which he never finished. Leonardo da Vinci was famous for not finishing things. He was, he was commissioned to do a painting by the Pope, and the Pope asked him how it was coming along, and he said, I'm experimenting with new varnishes, you know, which is the last thing you do. And they said, this guy can never, he can never finish things because he does the end before the beginning. But, you know, he left behind these uh, 15 paintings uh, in various stages, and he also left behind 4,000 drawings. Um, uh, paper uh, ever after became, you know, art, uh, art that was affordable. Books were originally huge. I mean, this podium is not actually big enough for a medieval book. Um, the 14th century poet Petrarch dropped a book in his lap and injured himself so badly he almost had to have a leg amputated. And he started trying to see if people could make some smaller books uh, because books became something that people actually read and you know even traveled with and moved around the house with and stuff. And um, <clears throat> they had to make them uh, a little more portable. Um, the, the printing press is another uh, perfect example of how um, <clears throat> ideas come along when you need them. The, the uh, Chinese invented the printing press and invented movable type. You know, the Chinese famously claimed their great contribution to civilization was four inventions, paper, printing, gunpowder, and compasses. Um, interesting, paper is the only one that they ascribe to an inventor. Uh, <clears throat> they did... They started doing printing presses uh, because of Buddhism. Uh, you know, if a, if a Jewish person is extremely devout, they will read the religious books over and over again. And a devout Muslim is supposed to memorize the Quran word for word. Uh, but a devout Buddhist is supposed to reproduce a copy of a sutra which is a book of sermons of the Buddha. And so you make a sutra, and that gets you a blessing. So can you imagine how many blessings you could get if you had a printing press? <laughs> um, and, that, and that's how it started. It never really took off there because, you know, movable type is kind of problematic if you have a language that has hundreds of thousands of characters. Um, it was never used in Europe until the Protestant Reformation. Um, the Protestant Reformation was a uh, basically political movement uh, that depended on paper. You know, this business of tacking things on church doors and on palaces and pamphlets and books and um, just a lot more stuff than they could get done uh, by handwriting. And so the printing press was developed uh, to move the, the Reformation. And it, it, and it kind of became a, a model for political activism. I and mean, it's just how the American Revolution was done with pamphlets and broadsides and books and the French Revolution. During the French Revolution, 
uh, the number of books published in France doubled. Um, all political movements uh, in, in the 1960s, it was all, um, you know, it was about putting out printed material. Um, some of you look like like me, you're old enough to remember mimeograph machines. <laughs> um, but uh, it was it, it was needed, and so it was invented. But it, it you know, I, I'm saying this like it's all just this kind of neat and logical progression. Um, like Hegel, the German philosopher, said reason is the law of the world, and therefore, in world history, things have come about rationally. Well, um, I think they come about more chaotically. Um, Holland, England, and America are all examples of countries that uh, printed long before they made paper. Um, it's a lot harder to make paper than to print. You know, you can get a printing press and put it in a back room. Uh, and a paper mill, it was water-powered. It needed to be by fast-running water. It had to be the right kind of water. If the water had too much iron in it, the paper would be funny-colored. Uh, just much more difficult. But the problem of, you know, creating printing presses without paper mills is, is kind of obvious. <laughs> um, when the pilgrims came to Massachusetts, uh, they didn't bring any paper, anybody who knew how to make paper, any printers, or any printing press. But this shouldn't surprise you, because they also didn't bring any farmers or fishermen or fishing tackle or farming equipment. Or, and the, the, the pilgrims were, were not prepared. Um, in... 1638, a wealthy Puritan decided to establish himself in Massachusetts, and he brought a printing press and two printing apprentices. He died on the ship on the way over, but the two apprentices set up the press and uh, printed the first book in America, which was an almanac for the year 1639. Uh, no copies of this almanac have survived. So the second book, which was a book of psalms called the Base Psalm Book, is famously known as the first book in America, although it's actually the second book. But I guess it's important to call it the first book because uh, a copy just sold in 2013 at Sotheby's for $14 million <laughs> as the first book in America. Um, uh, so, so look through your books, see what you have, you know. <laughs> Um, the first Bible printed in America in 1660 was printed in Algonquin. And, you know, the problem with this is that Algonquins didn't read or write. And so the, 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 the pilgrims invented a written Algonquin language so that they could teach them the Bible. But then they had to teach them their language, um, which, you know, you can understand that the Algonquins were a little suspicious about exactly what's going down here. Um, the first Bible printed in uh, English uh, didn't come until 100 years later. 
Uh, and Massachusetts didn't get its first paper mill until 1728. Uh, so it's more than 100 years after the Pilgrims landed. It was uh, <clears throat> funded by the family of John Hancock. The paper industry in America largely grew up in Pennsylvania uh, to a great degree with the backing of Benjamin Franklin. <clears throat> Benjamin Franklin started at least 18 paper mills, a lot of printing presses, uh, a bunch of newspapers, and really, you could say, was the first American press baron. Um, In 1764, the Stamp Act, remember the Stamp Act? I mean, what the Stamp Act was is it was a tax on things that were printed. Uh, newspapers, business accounts, uh, playing cards, anything printed. <coughs> and one of the, the things that this accomplished was it made all newspaper people hate the British. <laughs> probably, probably not a good move. Um, and newspapers started calling for their newspapers to be made exclusively with American paper and not use British paper, but there wasn't enough American paper being made. Um, when war broke out, the revolution tremendous paper shortages, which was really a problem because, you know, they use these black powder muskets, and, uh, you know, with the black powder musket, you have, to, you have to have some paper separating the powder from the ball so that it has a confined explosion so it will propel the ball. Um, so they needed uh, paper for this. They would break into uh, printing presses and get paper, uh, they broke into a, one of Franklin's mills and found a huge sack of a, a sermon on defensive war. The, the reverend who commissioned it never paid up, and so Franklin never distributed it, so they fired it all at the British. Uh, they also fired 3,000 copies of a German Bible. Um, they, were, they, were, they were trying in the revolution to boycott everything British. You know, John Adams had that idea later expressed by Mohandas Gandhi that you know, a rev revolutionary should wear um, homespun uh, cloth and not buy textiles from the British Midlands and all of that. Um, but paper was, it was, uh, it was a problem. When the Declaration of Independence came along, um, <clears throat> first of all, immediately they had that old European idea you know, that this is too important for paper. So they did it on parchment. Did four copies on parchment. Um, and by the way, you know, passed it around over weeks. You know, this, this scene in the room where everybody walks up and signs the thing and John Hancock says, there, the British can read that. It's a complete myth. Um, but they wanted... Uh, they wanted people to read the Declaration of Independence. They wanted it to be read by every garrison of the Continental Army, for one thing, and they wanted it to be read all over the colonies. <clears throat> so they printed it on paper, too, uh, broadsides, the Declaration of Independence, on British paper. It's actually, it's a little worse than that. It was, it was Dutch paper that the Dutch made for the British to use in the colonies. And the Dutch 
wanting to please their customer, the British made this paper with a watermark of the British royal seal. <laughs> so, you know, like the Federalist Papers or Hamilton and those people are arguing for the ratification of the Constitution, you know, the paper has the British royal seal on it. Um, the, in, into the 19th century, uh, official documents, the stationery of U.S. senators had the British royal seal on it. Finally, people started saying, what is this? And uh, the government started uh, subsidizing and helping the uh, American uh, paper industry so they could stop using this British stuff. So <clears throat> that's what I mean when I question Hegel about how rationally it all worked. Um, but technology is driven by need and you know, more reading meant more printing, which required more paper. Um, paper making uh, increased in the 1790s when a Frenchman, just same country, same time as Jacquard and the Loom, um, a guy named Robert used the two basic ideas of the Industrial Revolution, steam power instead of water power, and a conveyor belt. So when you made paper, you know, everybody made paper basically the way the ancient Chinese did with this screen. Um, and Robert came up with the idea of making the screen a conveyor belt. And then you could have this continuous roll of paper rather than doing it one sheet at a time. And he did this for the exact same reason that Jacquard did the loom, because uh, paper makers were highly skilled and had lots of privileges, and he wanted to crush them. Paper makers in France... Uh, demanded uh, certain dishes for certain holidays. They were called modes. And if you owned a paper mill and you didn't give the workers their modes, you would be in a lot of trouble. They had to have pig ears for Mardi Gras, and they had to have uh, um, donuts for Palm Sunday. And uh, uh, this guy, Robert, he just hated these guys. <laughs> and, uh, this was the machine to destroy them. And it didn't completely destroy them, but uh, it did make... Inroads and a lot more paper was being made with these machines. Um, but they were still being made with rags. And that was the great limitation. Uh, <clears throat> getting enough rags to make all the paper that was needed for everything that uh, people wanted to print. Um, in the American Revolution, it was said to be everyone's patriotic duty to save rags so they could make paper. And uh, um, paper makers just always struggled. In, in America, they spent a lot of money importing rags, but a lot of countries uh, passed laws banning the export of rags because they didn't want competing uh, uh, paper producers to get their rags. Uh, <clears throat> this book of mine... Uh, is printed on really nice paper. Uh, you know, we had a meeting. We said, come on, you know, there's going to be a book on paper. It's got to be nice paper. So <laughs> we got really nice paper. <clears throat> it's made by um, a mill in Pennsylvania called Glottfelter, uh, which started in 1863. They bought the mill at a bargain price, price and a going out of business sale because the previous... Um, owner 
had gone onto the nearby battlefield at Gettysburg and stripped the dead of bandages and uniforms to make paper. And um, turned out to be bad for business. People didn't really want that paper. <clears throat> but it, it was not uh, unprecedented. In, in, in Europe during the Napoleonic Wars, it wasn't uncommon for papermakers to go on battlefields and strip the dead for uh, rags. Um, that's you know pretty well documented. Uh, less verifiable is that it's often said that when Egyptians switched from papyrus to uh, paper in the Middle Ages, that they would break into... Uh, tombs and um, take the shrouds off mummies to make paper. Um, the rags were just always a problem. And um, so they started making wood out of paper. Uh, first uh, wood pulp paper in America was made actually the year of Gettysburg, 1863. Um, and it's a, it's a classic example of something else that happens in technology. Technology becomes less expensive, more accessible, and lower quality. Uh, happens all the time. And, you know, the truth is that our paper, our wood pulp-based paper, is not nearly the quality of the old rag paper. You go back and you look at uh, old books and you'll see. Um, I've gone and looked at uh, books uh, printed in Venice in 1501 by Aldous Minutius inventor of uh, italic type. And, um, you know, these 500-year-old books, there's no foxing, there's no discoloration, the pages are perfectly white, they're smooth, they aren't wrinkled. Uh, I guarantee you our books aren't going to look like that in 500 years. Um, <clears throat> but what it meant was that uh, you had material to make all the paper you wanted to make. Um, and in 1873, for the first time, the U.S. became the world's largest papermaker. Um, <clears throat> of course, they were laying waste to whole virgin forests to make paper. <clears throat> somebody, I was talking in, it was in Washington, D.C., and somebody asked me a good question. They said, why is it that uh, when they made parchment, nobody got upset about killing all the animals, but then when they made paper, everybody got upset about killing the trees? I don't have a good answer for that, <laughs> but, uh, but they did get upset about the trees. <clears throat> and um, uh, the thing that you should realize is that um, the problem was solved, that uh, paper does not destroy forests anymore, by and large. There's, occasionally, there was an issue with Indonesia some years ago, but uh, a few years ago, but they've stopped there, too. Um, Paper is made from um, tree farms that are very sustainable and raise fast-growing trees uh, for the purpose of making paper. So this whole thing about save a tree, you know, when you get when some company sends you a thing and tries to convince you to get your uh, billing electronically to save a tree, doesn't save a tree. It saves them a stamp. Um, there are some environmental issues still with paper mills, but it's not about trees. Uh, some issues about pollution and the kind of energy they use, because it takes a lot of energy to make paper. Um, there again, about new technology 
eliminating old technology. A lot less handmade paper is made, but still a considerable amount of handmade paper is made. Um, and uh, there's this weird story that I really like. You know, the, the Japanese make incredible handmade paper. It's very thin, so it's very lightweight, but it has long fibers, so it's strong. And in the 1940s, while the Americans were um, developing uh, atom bombs to drop on Japanese cities, the Japanese were developing um, handmade paper balloons to drop bombs from the U.S. Uh, and they released 9,000 bombs with handmade paper balloons. Uh, and these balloons drifted across the Pacific. 1,000 of them made it to the U.S. They got as far as we, the farthest one we know of made it to Michigan. Um, people would see them. I, uh, I was talking in, in Boston last week. I met somebody who, as a, as, as a child, actually saw one of these balloons. You know, you'd be out fishing or something, and this weird thing would go floating by. You'd go over the next rise, and then there'd be this boom. <laughs> and, um, it caused uh, two brush fires, and the only people it ever killed were in Oregon. Six people died because a balloon landed and the bomb failed to explode, and these people went over and started messing around with the bomb, and then it blew up. Um, here's the thing that's different about those times and now. The War Department said to the press, you know, this could cause a real panic, which was the whole idea of the Japanese doing this. So don't report on this. And they didn't write a word about it. Uh, this was nothing was ever written about this until years of military historian years after the war. Um, but you know that's an example of uh, an old technology hanging on. Uh, um, you know, let's bomb them with handmade paper. <laughs> um, but the, the thing that you find over and over again is, is that um, when the time is right for an idea, uh, lots of people start working on it. Uh, lots of people uh, started working on computers at about the same time. When, when Alexander Graham Bell was working on telephone, a whole bunch of people were working on telephones. Um, actually, an Italian guy in Havana invented a telephone before Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, lots of people were working on electric lights, light bulbs, when Edison was. Uh, there was a guy named Farkas Beaulieu, a uh, 19th century Hungarian mathematician that said about new ideas, when the time is right, these things appear in different places, like the way violets come to light in early spring. Um, and then we don't really remember the inventor. Um, you know, like Kai Lin, who we remember as the inventor, turns out he wasn't the inventor. I, I, I started to become aware of this in some of my earlier books, like my book uh, about oysters in New York, and I was writing about the character of Robert Fulton, the inventor of the steamboat. He didn't invent the steamboat. All Robert Fulton did was he established the first steamboat line that made money. It was between um, 
the East River of Manhattan in Albany, and it was very profitable, and it showed that you know this was a good commercial idea. Those are the people we remember. I wrote a book about Clarence Birdseye, the inventor of frozen food. Didn't invent frozen food. He invented a process that made it commercially viable. We 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 always remember those people. You know, we we don't remember the people in Asia who invented printing and movable type. We remember Gutenberg because Gutenberg showed the Western world that uh, printing uh, would could be readable and it could even be attractive, and that it, it was uh, a commercially viable idea. Um, you know, Steve Jobs wasn't an inventor. He didn't invent anything. Um, we we remember these people. Um, it helps if they made a lot of money. You know, we like to remember people who made a lot of money. Gutenberg didn't make a lot of money. He died very poor. Um, but we remember the people who <coughs> uh, took the tech- technology and, and brought it to the society and showed how it would work for something we were trying to do. Um, computers. Um, an idea that had a very, very slow evolution over centuries. Uh, Diderot, the uh, 18th century French. Did you notice how I keep talking about 18th century Frenchmen? What what, what is that? I don't know. But anyway, Diderot um, was the head of something called the uh, Encyclopedist Movement that believed that all knowledge should be collected in encyclopedias. And he said, you know, that every year there's more and more knowledge to put into encyclopedias, and and someday there'll be so much knowledge that an encyclopedia won't be able to hold it. And, you know, I don't know what we'll do then. Um, that, that time came after World War II. <laughs> Just tremendous amounts of information and science and technology and all sorts of things <clears throat> was developed during World War II. And a guy who worked for the U.S. government named Van Overbush in 1945 wrote an article for Atlantic uh, called As We May Think. And all of the uh, early developers of modern computers will tell you that they were extremely influenced by this article, As We May Think, um, in which he said, wholly new forms of encyclopedias will appear, ready-made with a mesh of associative trails running through them. That's what computers were about. Computers were never about um, novels. They were never about replacing paper. They were about a way of storing and accessing information. Um, And there was a a growing need for this, and that's exactly what people worked on. Um, Now... uh, People write books on computers and then publish them in paper, um, decrying the horrible thing that uh, computers are doing to our civilization. Um, and it's interesting to, to see how this was always said about new inventions. Uh, Plato was like that. You know, Plato was a guy who used the written word to write about how bad the written word was. Uh, this was a tremendous moment that doesn't really get studied enough when the world switched from oral languages to written languages. And uh, Plato was very concerned about it. And his concerns sound very familiar today. 
and he, he called writing artificial memory. And he said that, you know, some guy who just goes and looks things up in books doesn't have any real knowledge, which is, you know, exactly what I think when I'm in a conversation with somebody and they take out their iPhone and they Google something. It's like no real knowledge. Um, but, and, and, you know, so, and, and now, you know, we're being told that we're going to lose our memories. Uh, that's what uh, they said would happen uh, with the written word. A lot of people weren't happy about printed either. Um, printed uh, texts were not carried in a lot of libraries because they weren't real, you know, they weren't handwritten. Um, I, I mean, I have to admit I have a tendency to feel that way about things that are electronic instead of being on paper. Um, and I did a, a collection of short stories last year called City Beasts, and in the front of it I listed um, those stories that had been previously published in magazines. And I completely forgot the one that was published in an online magazine, because in my mind it wasn't really published. Um, uh, it's a difference between me and my 15-year-old daughter. Uh, she thinks that electronic things are real. Kids um, shoot a lot of snapshots, and they have no interest in ever printing them or making copies of them. Um, and I think, you know, you're going to lose your pictures if you just, you know, my daughter doesn't even back them up. Someday she's going to lose her iPhone and <laughs> that'll be the end of her pictures. But uh, they, don't, they don't think like that. And, you know, that was what was happening when there was first uh, printed book books as opposed to uh, uh, handwritten. You know, it just isn't real. Uh, the, the debate about... Um, uh, written language as opposed to oral language went on for years and years. In the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas said, Jesus Christ never used written language. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we live in this world where um, things change and technologies uh, serve these changes and uh, some of us always throw up our hands in horror about how this is destroying us. And, and we somehow get through it, you know. And everybody says, it's a changing world. I mean, how often do you hear that? It's a changing world. The world is really changing. Why do they say that? Was there ever a time in history when the world wasn't changing? Um, you know, what, what's happening, what's, what's different is that we have a lot more marketing now. You know, so you have, I mean... Apple comes up with a new iPhone every year, and they try to convince you that this is new technology. This leaves you with this feeling that, you know, there's this new technology coming at you every year, but it's not really new. They're just trying to get you to throw out your old phone and buy a new one, uh, which people are doing less and less now, by the way. Apple's getting very concerned about that. Um, you know, technology... Um, Inventors who invent technology, you know, without any concern about if anybody wants it, um, a lot of times that technology is, is doomed. Turns out we really didn't want supersonic jet transports. And um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. So they're developing all these uh, 
driverless cars. Uh, but I know a lot of people who really like to drive. Um, and so I, I think, you know, there again, it'll be a case of technology giving you a, a, an alternative. That's, you know, that's what happens. Ebooks. When ebooks first came out, a lot of people were saying, oh, this is the end of books. And people would say, you know, the ebook sales this year increased 100% over last year. You know, but if you sold one ebook last year and two ebooks this year, that's 100%. It, it, it stopped growing after it reached a certain point. It hasn't grown in years. Uh, turns out some people like ebooks, some people like hard books. Kids don't like ebooks. Um, uh, some people like ebooks for traveling and uh, hard books for when they're home, or they like certain kinds of books electronically and other books in, in, in hard books. And, and the point is that you, you, know, you have a choice. It's probably a good thing. Um, but books aren't finished, and paper isn't finished, and it's my hope that if you read this book that you will look at technology and history and look at our times a little differently. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I'd, lo I'd love to take some questions, but you have to... What? Did I do something wrong? What? <laughs> I was just going to say, come up to one of the mics. We you have, have to about, come up to one of the mics. We have about 15 minutes for questions. Oh, and they just turned up the lights, and I can see you. <laughs> so, see, people don't like to come up to the mics. <laughs> come on. I don't understand why they were having to go get rags all the time. Why didn't they just make more fabric? <laughs> it um, had to be used? What? The, paper, the fabric had to be used? I don't understand that. It didn't have to be used. It didn't make economic sense to manufacture. If you, if you just manufactured uh, textiles for the sole purpose of making paper, it would end up being extremely... Expensive. I mean, think about um, the cost of paper and the cost of clothing. Right. Yeah. So I can it, understand it that. Economically, um, it wouldn't have worked. It was, it, it was. Okay. I have another question. I um, bought a couple of notebooks that were made out of rocks, paper made out of rocks. Out of rocks? Yeah, and it said that it used less water. That was one of the issues with making paper, so it used a lot of water. It does use a lot of water. And then making it out of rocks didn't, but it's a very absorbent paper. It, take, it takes a lot of ink out of your ballpoint what, pen. What kind, of <laughs> what, what, what kind of rocks? It didn't seem to matter from what they were saying. You know, well, you know, asbestos at least has fibers. <laughs> you know, I don't know, but I, it, you know, I had the notebooks. The definition of paper is, is, is randomly woven fibers. Uh -huh. So I'm not sure that paper, that it, something made out of rocks actually would be paper, since paper doesn't break, uh, rocks don't break. Well, it was very difficult to rip the paper. <laughs> I will. I live across the street. If I find it real quickly, I will bring it back and okay, show it. Okay, great, great. Yes, sir. Hi. Thank you for your talk. Um, I was wondering uh, which of your books was the uh, most enjoyable to research, 
and the most difficult to research and, and why? Mm. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're all sort of enjoyable to research. Um, I, I couldn't really say, oh, yeah, that book was so much fun, whereas this other one was really a drag. <laughs> uh, uh, as far as difficulty goes, I mean, it depends what kind of difficulty you're talking about. Um, you know, some kinds of people are more difficult than others. I, I wrote a book about the, 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 the song Dancing in the Street. And uh, rock musicians are very hard to work with. You know, I may never again write something about rock music because they're, they're just such a pain. But, um, uh, but actually, that book was fun to do, too. Um, spent a lot of time hanging out in Detroit with Martha Reeves. That was fun. Um, yeah, I don't have a good answer for you. You know, they're all... What do you enjoy about researching and, and writing your books? Well, I mean, first of all, I love writing. I, I just write all the time. I write every day. And, um, and I enjoy research because I like finding things out. And, you know, uh, I don't hire researchers because I like to find things out on my own. And, you know, just finding... Finding weird things like the Japanese actually bombed the U.S. with handmade paper balloons. <laughs> you know, it's just, those are wonderful moments when you run across those things. Um, I actually first heard about that because somebody did a little book about it on handmade paper. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, uh, I, lo I love doing research. I, I, I like the whole thing. That's why I keep doing it. I got a, um, can I just, quick yeah. question? What's your take on uh, the way digital technology has changed the way people socialize? Because it seems to me that um, no one could have imagined wanting to be in a restaurant or at a party with, say, several other people not socializing, just looking at their iPhones. Um. Yeah, I mean, people say that, but, you know, you go to restaurants, you'll see these people, they're actually talking to each other. People don't, I think people get a little worked up about this thing, you know. People do spend a lot of time on their iPhones, but they do actually spend time talking to each other, too. And, you know, kids, we were talking about that before, that kids, um, you know, young girls spend a lot of time on social media. But they also, just like they always did, spend a lot of time getting together and talking their heads off. Um, I, I, I don't think it's true that uh, so social media has stopped people from um, uh, talking. It, I think it's cut down on reading, which is probably not a good thing. Uh, I was in this uh, airport in Abu Dhabi, beautiful airport, and it has these special sections for reading. 
you know, has these comfortable chairs and there's even some books around. And 90% of the people in the reading section were just looking at their phones. Um, but, you know, I, I think, uh, I, I think we have to accept the fact that things change and they move around and that we're still human beings and we have basic urges like to communicate and to talk to each other. And I, I don't think these things are going to really change. Some time ago, I read that an English teacher could tell the difference between words written by our students on paper and written on a computer. And it looks like your notes were handwritten. I'm wondering if you see that there's any difference in what is written at least first on paper versus on a computer. Do you, is there a difference for you? I think so. Um, and can you tell in what way it differs? I'm not sure I can. It, uh, it's a lot less legible, I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, um, I don't know. It's a, just a more a, a more immediate thing. I mean, in my <clears throat> working process, I'll go around and I'll talk to people with a notebook in hand, and I'll handwrite uh, lots of notes, which I do very quickly. And then, you know, I often think like, you know, you hear about these cases where the court orders you to turn over your na- notebooks. A lot of luck with that. I mean, <laughs> but um, at the end of the day, I go back to my hotel room or wherever I am, and I write up all these notes in a computer, and I add uh, visual impressions and just any kind of impressions I can because, you know, when you're writing a book, it might be uh, a couple of years before I look at these notes again. Um, which is always extraordinary because it shows that memory is useless. You know, you go back and you look at these things and it's not at all the way you remembered it. But I think that what I find in this process is that writing by hand is more immediate and uh, writing by computer is more reflective. It, it's funny you you bring up the Japanese uh, incendiary uh, balloons during the during the war. My grandfather was uh, FBI stationed out of Seattle then, and it was his job to squash all that. And oh, really? Yeah, and he talked about it when I was a kid a lot. And then two books came out uh, in uh, retaliation, like uh, sometime in the seventies. Now there's a new book out. A guy was traveling around with uh, up in Alaska. I missed him, but um, the biggest reason that the Japanese um, were sending over those incendiary balloons was they thought if they could light all the Western forests on fire, that they would it would take so much manpower to to fight the forest fires that they could seriously uh, kind of decimate our war effort a little bit. So it's, yeah, I, I think they were they were trying to create this after the bombing of Tokyo. Uh, the uh, American bombing of Tokyo, which was supposed to demoralize the Japanese, and it actually didn't. And then the Japanese thought, well, but this is an interesting idea. What can we do to demoralize them? And they had this unit in the military that I would call it the Committee for Weird Weapons. (laughs) They just had all kinds of strange ideas. I mean, that's the only one I dealt with because it was the only one that involved paper. But they had all sorts of ideas for strange weapons, and they had this idea that, you know, if you just did something really odd and destructive, that it, w- it would cause a panic. And uh, 
they got your father to uh, grandfather, yeah, grandfather. <laughs> but yeah, he he also had to quash uh, the submarine attacks on the west coast too, and uh, so he was. That was, you know, all that stuff's coming out eventually. But yeah, there's a but real good. You quash it. I mean, you 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 just told reporters not to. Yeah, report yeah. It. yeah, yeah. And but yeah, they uh, there's a good book on the um, on the balloons called Retaliation. Anybody looks it up. So interestingly, uh, you've like covered my whole life over the years. My family, I'm Norwegian American from Ballard, but uh, um, my family started fishing cod with salt back in the 1880s, <laughs> and we still do. And uh, I'm a oyster. Any baseball players? Um, my dad was okay, but uh, <laughs> um, and then uh, I'm an oyster farmer in Alaska, okay. and I've been a fisherman my whole life. And of course, I told you earlier I spent time in the Basque Country. But an interesting thing is when when we cured all of our our uh, um, our cod and salt, it was before I own a seafood plant too, so uh, we use a lot of what we call in the industry fiber. So. Cardboard is a huge thing, and if you ever want to write a book about cardboard, you know, but just that's a terrible idea. But I always, so the price of fiber are, are, are that we buy from they, it goes up every year pretty astronomically, and they always say there's a shortage of cellulose to make fiber, and one of the big reasons we'll hear is um, that the the boreal forests of the north where uh, that are getting cut for a lot of fiber are getting decimated and um, spruce bark beetles, stuff like that. Now, um, global warming and the huge forest fires and stuff like that. So I haven't read your book, and I apologize, but I'm, I'm always concerned about the worldwide source of fiber. Is there, is there enough coming from the, from the tree farms and stuff like that that we're yeah. going to be okay for a long yeah. time? Yeah, certain species of trees like eucalyptus and acacia are, are very fast-growing and, and really lend themselves to... To farming, and uh, you know, worldwide there there isn't a, a shortage of paper pulp. We're trying to transition from cardboard. There's a lot of use of 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 uh, um, um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, the the white um, styrofoam, which is just a scourge, you know, worldwide. Yeah. So a lot of fish companies use styrofoam. I never do, but we try to use fiber. We're trying to transition to something that's more environmentally, you know. Um, PC, but we still haven't got there yet. So, okay. there's a book for you. All right, thank you. <laughs> Don't write it. <laughs> well, I wanted to start by saying thank you. You've given me many, many hours of enjoyable reading oh, with your you. books. Nice and you uh, if minutia is a strange art, I'm all for it. Thank you. <laughs> um, my question has to do with. I haven't read the book yet. I just bought it. Yeah, but I will. And um, it. Focused your speech anyway. Focused on printed matter. Mm-hmm. It also occurs to me that there's a lot of writing that used to go on in our world, handwriting, letters between Dolly Madison and mm-hmm. her husband, or between what Jefferson, right? And uh, actually, there's letters um, between uh, John Adams and his wife Abigail, and yes. he apologizes for not writing more, but he has trouble right. getting paper. Exactly. Yeah. So, in your research, did you uncover or stumble across anything that talks about a decline in writing? And speaking to educators, uh, when I have a chance, it seems like writing skills are not nearly as emphasized as they were when I was in school and everybody tried to convert me to be right-handed, even though I'm a left Yeah. Um, know, things like that. You know, yeah. I mean, what happens with all these things, writing, memory, all these things, is they, they, they change in different ways. So 
you know, so some kinds of writing there's less of, sometimes kinds of writing there's, there, there's more of. There, um, there's probably considerably less letter writing, or at least the people in the business of letter writing paper <laughs> see a declining market in that. But, you know, other kinds of writing there's, uh, um, there's more of. They used to talk about a paperless office, and that clearly isn't happening. And it's like, they forgot something really key there. And that is, yes, everybody has computers, but every computer is connected to a printer. Um, so it's like things, things change and they go in different combinations, but uh, uh, in general, things don't disappear. Hi. Uh, speaking of a paperless office, um, I was uh, intrigued to hear that you are a paralegal because I'm working on my, getting my paralegal certificate. And so I'm currently uh, working in a law firm on an intern basis, but whatever. Um, so I spend pretty much all of my day scanning stuff into a computer, turning paper into, you know, digital PDFs. Um, and this is because our firm has like 11,000 boxes in storage and they don't want 11,000 in one. Um, so I'm wondering if, you know, a few years down the line, uh, paper will become, it'll have two different sort of lives. It'll kind of go away from the business sector and then it'll just become a sort of recreational use type product. Well, that isn't happening. That, 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 that isn't happening. It's, uh, it's used a lot in business. And, you know, it's, it's um, paper is the most secure communication. People can't hack paper. Uh, if any of you saw the movie about Edward Snowden, um, I can't remember the name of the movie now, but, you know, in the beginning of the movie, he's sitting with the reporter in the hotel room, and they're right next to each other. They're exchanging information, but they're, um, they think the room might be bugged. So they're communicating through encrypted messages on there. They both have computers there, and they're trading encrypted messages. And then after a while, they don't, they're not sure that they can depend on the encryption. You know, Charles Bukowski said that uh, uh, definition of a paranoid was a man in possession of all the facts. <laughs> and by the end of the movie, they're writing notes on scraps of paper, passing them back and forth, and then burning them. And I, I was talking about this uh, one night somewhere, and there was this guy there who worked on, that was his, encryption was his field. And he said that in people who work in encryption are very aware that paper is the safest thing, that they're there, all the codes of encryption are always written on paper and not electronically, and that um, they uh, have a great concern for uh, you know putting things on paper because it's the safest thing. So, you know, um, it's, for lots of reasons, it's not going away. I, mean, I, I talked to a guy named Mitch Kapoor, who was one of the pioneers in software, and he. Uh, he said that he thought, you know, that paper would last at least uh, until somebody invented a paper-thin computer that you could either crumple up or fold up. <laughs> we just have time for the three remaining questions. Okay, three remaining questions. Two remaining questions. 
Wait, don't go away. <laughs> yeah. Could you make paper out of fibers other than cellulose fibers? Not really. Not really, but cellulose is in so many things. Seaweed has cellulose. And, uh, um, uh, rice, yeah, yeah. I mean, just lots of things have most... Most organic things have uh, have cellulose fibers. Maybe this is in your book, but I'm wondering how did the rag paper get bleached white? You talked about the paper being so white after all these years. What chemicals did they use? Um, well, You know, bleach was invented, I don't remember the exact date, but in the 1700s. Before that, and still I've seen this done in Japan. Uh, I I was visiting this village in Japan. There was snow on the ground, and they made uh, paper from uh, bark of certain trees. And they stripped the bark, and they lay it out in the snow in the sun to bleach it. The bleach is white, and then they use it for the paper. Um, but then there was, you know, the bleach was one of the main things. And it used to be rag sorting was very important, you know, and you had blue rags, you had blue paper, and uh, only with white rags could you have uh, white paper before they invented bleach. Okay, well, thank you all very much. Nice talking to you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Mark Kurlansky spoke at Town Hall Seattle on May 27th. Thanks again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon.